We're in week three of a four-week short series entitled, The Passion of Our King, Beholding Jesus Christ in the Final Week of His Earthly Ministry. This short series leading up to Easter is all about beholding Jesus, looking at Him. And it is our prayer and our hope that as we do that, that our affections would be drawn away from the world and to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we watched as Jesus was led triumphantly into Jerusalem. As the son of David, the king of the Jews, he was paraded in as a king. But at the end of this week, he will be led out of the city carrying a cross. Last week, Pastor Matt unpacked part of John chapter 13 for us as we encountered this same Jesus, our king, as he wrapped a towel around his waist and stooped down at the feet of his disciples and washed their feet. What an incredible display of the humility of our king that we saw in that passage. Well, this morning we're going to look at another scene from the final days of Jesus's life on earth. This time it is the scene of the Last Supper as he gathers with his closest disciples and celebrates on this very evening of his arrest. And then I want to invite you this Friday night to come back for our annual Good Friday service. It's going to be from 7 to 8 o'clock. Our Good Friday service is intended solely to cause us to consider Jesus in the final hours of his earthly ministry, from the arrest and his trial to his scourging and ultimately his crucifixion. Our annual Good Friday service has always been, for me, a very important part of preparing myself for celebrating the joy of the resurrection on Sunday. And so I would invite you to come out this Friday for that. And then again, obviously on Sunday as we celebrate together the significance and the importance and the beauty and the joy of that empty tomb together. But this morning, we're going to be looking at this, at this scene of the Last Supper, and we're going to be doing so from Luke's Gospel account in chapter 22. We're going to read verses 1 through 23. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, 
Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into his house and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after he had, they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Would you pray with me? Father, what a privilege it is to worship you as a faith family. Thank you so much for the opportunity we've had this morning to do just that. We turn now to your word, Lord. We remain in a spirit of worship, humbled and grateful that we have this book, humbled and grateful, Lord, that we can trust that it contains the very word of God. It is your breath, and in it we find you, and in it we find life. And so we ask, Father, that you would attend to the reading of your word this morning with your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, not just so that we can make sense of what this says and what it means, but God, simply through it, you might draw us closer to yourself, rescue sinners from deserved judgment, and preserve for yourself a people for your own glory. We pray that you would do that among us this morning. We ask this in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning's passage in Luke chapter 22 can be divided into four sections. And if you're taking notes, this is the kind of the flow that I'd like to take this morning. In the first two verses, we find the setting, wherein we discover where we are and what's been happening in this setting. In verses 3 through 6, we see the tension rising in the story as we discover that there is a betrayer, a traitor in their midst. And this causes the tension in the story to rise. And then in verses 7 through 18, we have the meal where we see Jesus and his apostles celebrating the traditional Passover meal. And then in verses 19 through 23, we have the ordinance itself as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper as an ongoing practice for the church. And so I want us to walk through briefly those first three sections so that it might give us a background and a context 
so that we might fully embrace the meaning and the significance of that all-important fourth section. And then when we're finished with that, I want us to do something different than we typically do here at New Branch when we observe the Lord's Supper. Typically at this point, we would have already observed the Lord's Supper as we enter into now the proclamation of the word. But since we're going to be unpacking a passage of scripture where our Lord, the Redeemer, institutes this observance, we're going to together celebrate the Lord's Supper afterwards as a means of applying what we learn in this passage of scripture. So let's turn first to the setting that we see in verses 1 and 2. We're in Jerusalem. Uh, We are in and around Jerusalem. Jesus is actually going back and forth between the Mount of Olives just outside the city and into the city itself. Jesus had entered into the city earlier in the week as we looked at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He entered into it, as we said, as the son of David, hailed as the king of the Jews. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But now it's the end of the week, and tradition holds that this is probably either late afternoon Thursday or Thursday early evening. And we're told in verse 1 that the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And, and, and that helps us to recall why there's this large crowd of people that is following Jesus, that many of them are on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to celebrate this Passover celebration, this annual feast and celebration where the nation of Israel commemorates that God delivered the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And so the streets of Jerusalem at this point would have been bursting with people from all over Judea and the surrounding regions as these pilgrims make their way into the city to celebrate Passover. Now during this week, this entire week, Jesus has been very busy. Right after his triumphal entry, he went straight into the temple And he won friends and influenced people by turning over the tables of the money changers. He accused them of turning his father's house of prayer into a den of thieves. Obviously, this put a huge target on his back for two reasons in particular. Number one, it was clear that he had the hearts of the people. He had the heart of the crowd in Jerusalem. This teeming crowd that had traveled with him to Jerusalem. He had their hearts, and that's what the religious leaders wanted. They were jealous of his favor among the crowd. But secondly, this put a target on his back, because now he had interfered with one of the revenue streams of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and all of the Sanhedrin by turning over the tables of the money changers. If you want to get on the wrong side of a Pharisee, just mess with his income. And that's what Jesus had done. And so we're told in verse 2 that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. They wanted Jesus dead, but they didn't know how they were going to do it because they feared this crowd who so adored him, apparently. 
He had become known in Jerusalem as the teacher. And ever since Monday, he had been going into the temple each and every day to teach. In fact, look back at the last two verses of the previous chapter, chapter 21, just prior to what we just read. Beginning in verse 37, Luke tells us, And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the Mount of Olives called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So every single day, he would get up early. One wonders whether or not he slept. He probably was praying all night. But he got up early. He went into the town. He got, went to the temple. And he taught the people all day. And then he went home at night to the Mount of Olives. Every single day. And he taught differently than anyone else. The the people noticed that he taught as one who had authority resident in himself. He didn't appeal to rabbi so-and-so or rabbi this and that. He appealed to his own authority as he taught differently than anyone else had taught. And the people were drawn to him and listened to him and were following him. And so the chief priests and and the scribes who wanted him gone, they were fearful of this crowd. And so they were perplexed about how they were going to get rid of him. And the answer to their predicament comes in the form of this one Judas Iscariot. That leads us to the next section of this morning's passage, the the tension. We're we're told here in verse 3, Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who who was of the number of the twelve. And then that led him to be meet to to meet with the chief priests and the Jewish leaders in order to betray Jesus into their hands. What does it mean that Satan entered into Judas? Well, it means exactly that. It means somehow Satan entered into, possessed, if you want to call it that, inhabited Judas to the point where he influenced Judas to betray Jesus for what Moses would tell us in the book of Exodus was the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. Friends, Satan and his demons can and do still inhabit and or possess people today and make them do things that otherwise simply doesn't make sense. And perhaps we saw a couple of examples of those recently in the last couple of weeks in the shootings here in Atlanta and in Colorado. That kind of evil, quite possibly, and maybe even quite likely, is a result of demonic and satanic influence. But in saying this, let us be clear that a believer in Jesus Christ cannot be possessed or inhabited by any demon or Satan himself. True believers in Jesus Christ are, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit literally resides in the soul and the spirit of a believer, and he doesn't share that space with evil. We can be influenced by demons, and we can be oppressed by, by demonic influence, just as I think Peter is in this very same chapter 
as he denies that he even knows Jesus, believers can be influenced by demons, but they cannot be possessed or inhabited by Satan's or demons. But Judas was. We're told quite literally that Satan entered into Judas. Which leads us to affirm that Judas was not a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. He was not a a Christian. He was not a Christ follower. He was what we might call a pretend follower. Judas was known to be the one who kept the money of the apostles, this band of Jesus' disciples. And we're told in John chapter 12, verse 6, he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas didn't love Jesus. Judas loved money. Judas loved the power and the pleasures that money could buy. And I believe that this is what made him the target of Satan. Satan saw this as his opportunity. This is how he was going to get to Jesus. There's a warning here for us, church, and it's twofold. Firstly, we're warned by this, that if we nurture hidden sin in our lives, then we are making ourselves much more vulnerable to more and greater temptations. That's what happened to Judas here. He cultivated a desire for money and power, so much that he began to steal from the coffers of the apostles. And eventually this led him to being vulnerable to Satan influencing him, entering him, and convincing him to betray the one who had called him to follow him, Jesus. Why? For more money. He cultivated a hidden desire, and it eventually ate him. Friend, if you're cultivating a hidden sin, if you're giving yourself to something that you know that you shouldn't and that remains hidden and you continue to cultivate a desire for it then you're only kidding yourself into thinking that it's going to remain just that sin evil tends to be pervasive satan is never satisfied with just a foothold and if you give him that foothold Before you know it, he'll be stomping all over you. And so don't give it to him in the first place. Don't give it to him. Do as James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But friend, if you already have, if you have given him a foothold, then repent of that today. Repent of that this morning and trust in Christ to give you the strength to resist that temptation in the future. The second warning that we see from this is that no manner of religious activity could ever make us right with God. Consider the advantages of Judas. First of all, he was chosen by Jesus to follow him. Now, we're going to have to wrestle with the sovereignty of God in that, are we not? That Jesus 
chose the one who ended up betraying him. But, but that simply tells us that, that God sometimes uses even the most heinous sins in order to fulfill and accomplish his plans while remaining unstained by that sin itself. God's plan, his plan to redeem lost sinners like you and I was to offer up his son on the cross for the sins of mankind. And in his divine sovereignty and wisdom, the means that he chose, part of the means that he chose to accomplish that plan was the heinous betrayal of this one Judas. But, but Judas was chosen as one of the 12, which, which means that, man, he had a front row seat to all of the miracles of Jesus, and he had a front row seat to the teachings of Jesus. If ever there was someone who could be saved simply by, by observing and be a part of the experience of great miracles or, or sitting under awesome teaching, it was Judas. But even in his advantaged condition, these things didn't take. But add to that, more than that, Judas himself was a preacher of the gospel. He himself drove out demons. And if ever there was anyone who could be saved by their religious activity, it was Judas. But even for him, as is the case for all of us, all of that religious activity could not in the least make him right with God. He was a pretend follower. Which also should be a reminder to us that there could be pretend followers in any church, even in ours. Outward displays of religious activity are no barometer for spiritual vitality. And in the end, a tree will be known by its fruit. Sinners are not made right with God because they are religiously active and engaged in ministry or even preaching. Sinners are only made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, His life, His death, and His resurrection to defeat sin and death forever. So friend, if you're here this morning and if you are a pretend follower of Jesus and my encouragement to you this morning is to simply lay down your religious activity, set it aside. It is of no benefit to you in your hopeless condition. Your only hope and your secure hope and your confident hope is to place all your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, crucified, died, buried, and risen again as the rescuer of all those who will come to him in faith. Judas was a pretend follower. And now he's made this deal with the religious leaders of the day to betray Jesus. And here's the thing. Jesus knows this. Jesus knows who is going to betray him. And yet, what did we see right before this in John's gospel? As we heard last week, 
Jesus washes the disciples' feet, including those of Judas. Imagine that. Jesus, knowing what he knew, knowing that just the next day what Judas would do, knowing what was in his heart at that moment, still Jesus wrapped the towel around his waist and he bent his knee and he stooped before Judas's feet and he, he, he clasped Judas's hands in his own holy hands and washed the dirt off of them. What an incredible display of humility in our king. There's a traitor in their midst, and this adds to the tension of the scene that comes next, which is the Passover meal. The narrative of the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples here, as it's told by Dr. Luke, can be divided into two parts. First of all, there's the preparation in verses 7 through 13, and then the meal itself in verses 14 through 18. In the preparation, Jesus sends Peter and John into the city to make preparations to prepare the meal for them to celebrate Passover together. They ask him, Lord, where do you want to have it? And he tells them, this is amazing, you're going to see a guy carrying a jar of water. I want you to follow him to his house. And then I want you to tell him, Jesus needs your guest room because he and his disciples are going to celebrate Passover there. Now, I would imagine that there could have been any number of men carrying jars of water at any particular time on the streets of Jerusalem. But here we see Jesus, who we see most predominantly in this scene of his final uh, week of his life, in his humanity, Here we see Jesus operating freely within his divinity to not only know that that this particular guy is just going to happen to be walking the streets of Jerusalem and happen to be carrying a jar of water, and that as Peter and John make their way in their city, they're just going to happen to run into him, they're going to see him, and this particular guy who's carrying this particular jar of water just happens to have a house with an upper room that's large enough for Jesus and his, all, all of his disciples to celebrate the Passover together. He doesn't just know this. Jesus is willing this to happen. Jesus is causing this to happen. Church, let us never forget as we watch Jesus as he makes his way into Jerusalem operating in Jerusalem, and then ultimately setting his face like flint towards the cross of Calvary. Let us never forget that he is God. That Jesus is Lord. He didn't begin in Bethlehem. He had no beginning. He is eternal. He is God. He is the Lord. And so Peter and John do just as he says. And lo and behold, they find the room just as he had said. Why? Because he is God. And he made it so. He made it so. So now the preparations have been made. Now we come to the observance of the Passover meal itself. We're told in verses 14 and 15 that when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That phrase, earnestly desired, 
translates the Greek that is more literally translated in the King James Version here, which reads, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover meal. That word desire refers to a desperate, a deep craving and longing. And and we find it, as the King James Version tells us, twice in this verse. Once as a noun and once as a verb. And so it is literally, with a deep craving, I have longed to celebrate this Passover with you. Why has Jesus had this deep craving to celebrate this Passover with his disciples? The great preacher and scholar G. Campbell Morgan notes that what should be emphasized here are the two words, this Passover, this Passover. You see, Jesus and his disciples had celebrated many Passovers together, but this is going to be the final one. All previous Passovers that they had celebrated together had pointed back to that dark night in Egypt when the first Passover lamb was sacrificed, that lamb whose blood was then painted over the doorposts of the Hebrews so that they would be spared the judgment of the final plague, that of the angel of death. Listen to what G. Campbell Morgan writes referring to the statement by Jesus there in verse 15. He says, As I read that, I cannot escape from the conviction that what he meant was this. I have moved toward this hour, desiring it all the way, this climactic and final hour on the earthly level, when the real meaning of my mission shall be accomplished. Friend, Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, as Paul would later tell the Corinthians. He is our Passover lamb, and he was sacrificed so that we might be spared the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. And that is the true mission that he came to accomplish, our freedom at his expense. And so now as Jesus is presiding over this final Passover Seder, he is Now doing this, not pointing any longer forward to him, but now in just a few short hours, he's not just going to be pointing forward to him, he's going to be actually living out that which the Passover had always been pointing forward to since the institution of it in the Old Testament. Not only was this the last Passover that Jesus and his disciples would observe together, it was also the last time that Jesus was going to eat this meal for a very long time. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Which is a beautiful foreshadowing of the joy and the rejoicing that we who know him by faith will experience one day when we sit down at the marriage feast with this lamb, the Passover lamb, and celebrate Passover with him again. The greatest Passover Seder ever conducted will include all saints, past, present, and future, who have looked to Christ in faith, and we will be absolutely amazed in his presence. Imagine 
friend, how awesome that will be. The saints of old to our left, dear brothers and sisters who have gone on to be with the Lord to our right, and Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the King, the Passover Lamb, sitting at the head of the table, presiding over the Passover Seder. And he will use the feast of Passover to point again back to Egypt and point again forward to him. In verse 17, he passes around a cup of wine. Now, scholars like to debate on what exactly this is, whether this cup of wine here in verse 17 is part of the Lord's Supper that we're looking at and that we're going to observe together here in a moment, or whether this is still part of the Passover meal that he's been presiding over. The other gospel writers only mention one cup, and so they're not helpful in us figuring this out. But here Luke clearly refers to two different cups. And I happen to think that this is part of the Passover meal. In a Passover traditional Passover Seder, there are traditionally four cups of wine. There's the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, and then the cup of Hallel, or the cup of praise and thanksgiving. All of these cups referring to God's deliverance of the Hebrews, his children, the nation of Israel, out of bondage in Egypt. And we don't know which one this cup refers to, but I like to think it's the last one because it's right before he gives us the Lord's Supper. I think it's the cup of Hallel, the cup of praise and thanksgiving, symbolic of the praise and thanksgiving that our Lord deserves from us for having delivered us out of bondage to sin and death. But Jesus says in verse 8, I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so quite literally Jesus says this is the last time I'm going to drink wine until when? Until the kingdom of God comes. Now you're going to have to come back when we start our Revelation series the Sunday after Easter to find out what Jesus is referring to when he talks about the coming kingdom of God, right? But we know that Jesus did in fact drink the fruit of the vine again while he was on the cross. So what's up with that? Listen to what John tells us as he records the story in John 19 verses 28 through 30. After this, this is Jesus on the cross, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The wine was sour because it was diluted. It was diluted with vinegar. And so it was very weak wine, but it was wine nonetheless. But this doesn't invalidate Jesus' statement here in Luke chapter 22 when he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. The fact that he drinks the sour wine on the cross does not invalidate that statement because Jesus clearly says here, it is finished. 
In other words, everything that had to be done in order to purchase the redemption and the salvation of all of God's elect had been accomplished. It is finished. As we see Jesus presiding here over this Passover Seder, this traditional Passover meal with his disciples in that upper room, it ought to elicit at least a couple of different responses from us. First, we ought to respond here with praise and thanksgiving. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been delivered up for our rescue from our bondage. And otherwise, we had no hope. But through this Passover lamb that was sacrificed, died, buried, and rose again, we have all the hope in the world. We have the confidence that we can enter into the presence of our king through our Passover lamb. And so we respond. We see him celebrating this Passover meal in all of its symbolism, and we respond with praise and thanksgiving to him and what he has accomplished for us. But secondly, we ought to look forward with great anticipation to that day when we will be able to recline at table with Christ. And once again, once again, Jesus will preside over the Passover meal. And like he did, I believe, with the two that he met up with on the road to Emmaus in that setting, he will open up the scriptures to us and he will show us that they all point to him. What a glorious scene that will be. The observance of the traditional Passover meal now complete, Jesus now seamlessly moves to institute the Lord's Supper, which is the final section of our passage, verses 19 through 23. Follow along. Let's just read these last few verses of this passage. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now, before we unpack the ordinance itself and celebrate it together, we need to deal with a sequencing challenge here because the way Luke writes this, it seems as though Judas, the pretend follower, was present during this first communion service. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in verses 19 and 20 and then he calls out the betrayer in verse 21. The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Sounds like Judas was present for this first Christian ordinance. All of the gospel accounts deal with this story in one way or the other, some of them more helpful than others. Matthew and Mark's account of this are not terribly healthy, uh, helpful because they don't even talk about Judas leaving. But John's gospel does. And in John's gospel, he tells us very clearly that Judas left immediately after the Passover meal celebration. He left immediately after Jesus had dipped his morsel into the sop, which was clearly a part of the Passover celebration. 
And so Judas left immediately after that. That combined with the knowledge that we have that Luke writes his gospel account and he organizes uh, his, his account not based on a chronological ordering but according to a topical ordering. And based on this, I'm convinced at least that once the Passover meal had ended, that's when Judas left to meet up with his co-conspirators, the, co, the, the chief priests and the scribes, and make their little plan to betray Jesus. And then and only then did Jesus institute the Lord's Supper. And this would certainly follow the teaching of the apostles and their teaching in the New Testament that the Lord's Supper, or, or communion as we sometimes call it, is to be observed only by those who are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. But that unbelievers, or in Judas's case, those who are pretend followers, those unbelievers and pretend followers who partake of the Lord's Supper are, as Paul would later tell the Corinthians, only heaping judgment on themselves. And this is why today pastors and elders need to what's called fence the table, a phrase that refers to that passage from 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul gives instructions to the New Testament church to not observe the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, which in particular means that those who are unbelievers or those who are unrepentant believers or those who are members of a church who are under formal church discipline should not take communion. They should not partake in the bread and the juice. And to do so could result in severe discipline and judgment from the Lord. As I said, in a few moments, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper together as a way of application to this text. And in preparation for that, we should go ahead and do just that here and fence the table so that we understand who should and who should not partake. And so this is similar to what we might normally say, that the Lord's Supper is for you who have been forgiven of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus gave this sacred tradition to the church. So don't think that you must come to the table perfect. You cannot. Jesus Christ is our perfection. And so you are invited to come to the table broken, yet believing and hoping and repenting. If you are not a Christian, the bread and the cup is something that you should not receive. Only those who have received Christ should receive communion. We encourage you to use this time instead to consider the offer of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus holds out to all who are willing to receive him by faith. Instead, place your hope in him. You might not come to the communion table this morning, but you can come to faith in Jesus Christ. You can come to a place of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in him, which is what this observance is really all about. That is fencing the table. And I'm convinced that that is what Jesus did in this first setting. 
in ensuring that the betrayer had been excused prior to the institution of the Lord's Supper. One more thing that I want us to notice before we observe the Lord's Supper together is what Jesus said in verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So the question that we must deal with here is who put Jesus on the cross? It wasn't us. Though our sin and our rebellion is why it was necessary. It wasn't Pilate, though his hands are not clean of this treachery, though he wishes them to be. It is not the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, though it is their jealousy and pride that were one of the means employed to put him there. They are not the cause And it wasn't Judas who put him there. Though it was his betrayal and his lust for money and power that was likewise one of the means that God used to put him there. But he wasn't the cause. All of these are responsible for their sinful actions and decisions. But they are not the cause of Jesus' crucifixion. Who put Jesus on the cross? His Father, the Lord. As Jesus himself says here, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Determined by whom? By that sovereign Father. By God. As we read through Isaiah's familiar prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53, we find words like this. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, And here comes verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper 
in his hand. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. What happened to our Lord happened because our sovereign God determined that it would happen. It was his plan to redeem hopeless sinners like you and I back to himself by offering up his son on the cross. That was his plan, and what a glorious plan it was. Would you pray with me as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper? Our Father, we thank you so much for this picture that we have of Jesus. As we're told by your Son to do this in remembrance of him, Father, help us to never forget. Allow us, by your grace, to utilize this ordinance of communion, your Son's table, as a means of remembering. First of all, because we tend to forget. Second of all, because we tend to get wrapped up with the cares of this world. And may this observance, this meal that you have left to us, Father. Grant us the grace to be, to persevere in the faith and to keep going and to keep fighting against sin and keep fighting for unity in his bride until you take us home. We thank you for this beautiful picture of our Lord's death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.